Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 56. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the rocket scientist or the jet propulsion scientist, uh, doctor, whoever, Dr. C. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. That's a strange intro. I am not a rocket scientist, nor at anything else. I'm just lowly old Rob. You know, I always felt like all scientists were rocket scientists to me. Um, No, I think most scientists could not handle rocket science, actually. Oh, okay. It's that complicated. Well, yeah. <laughs> it depends on which aspect you're getting into. I mean, it's just it's basic engineering, but it's the mathematics involved in rocket flight, acceleration, orbiting, and things like that. Most people don't do that math. Mm. I guess today we have computers to do it for us. But Does that make computers rocket scientists? Oh, yes. Excellent. So mentally, I'm starting to check out because I'm going on vacation this weekend. And by the time everybody's heard this, I'm already back. But, ah, Rob, I am long overdue. I've had some vacations around the holidays, but other than that, I haven't been able to go anywhere, see the beach, you know, go to the mountains, except, well, okay, I take it back. I did get to go to the mountains earlier this year, and that was great, but I got sick during that vacation, so it was a little spoiled. That would be ruined, yes. You had a vacation anytime recently? Um, yeah, spring break, went down to Florida. Nice, that's where I'm heading. Well, I went to the end of Florida. We're going to St. Augustine, and I remember being there many, many years ago. Maybe seeing the fort. I don't. I don't remember anything. I don't In, remember like any Fort Matanzas. I think it's called. Okay. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> the site of a bloody uh, ambush murder spree. Ooh. The the French colonized it, and the Spanish are like, uh, uh-uh. uh. So they wiped them out. Wow. Okay. <laughs> People from different nations treated each other with such suspicion and such contempt. Mm-hmm. It's shocking compared to today when we kind of like laugh at somebody a little bit, but not. You don't walk up to them and just stab them. Anyway. Oh, no. Yeah. So uncivilized. You know, when you think about vacation spots, you don't think about visiting historical sites of such pandemonium and mayhem. But it's what you do when you go to Florida. You yep. go to Disney World. You go to the fort. <laughs> There's all kinds of murder stories. Oh, I, I, I do everything I can to avoid Disney World, but I understand why people want to go there. Really? See, I haven't ever been while I was not in the womb. <laughs> My mom and dad really? when I was yes, when I was maybe six months in the womb. And <laughs> they had a great time, I'm sure. <laughs> but then we went back to Orlando for Universal Studios when I was twelve. You didn't go to Disney? No. How strange. We just made it a week of the Universal Studios, and I think we saw part of SeaWorld. We okay. also visited a beach, but you know, there's so many things in a town like that. You can't possibly see all of them in one week. No, that's definitely true. How about you? Have you ever seen, have you seen most of what there is to see in Florida? I imagine because you got family down there, you have. I've seen a lot. Um, I remember laughing hysterically when the two dolphins at SeaWorld came up and they introduced them. This is Cindy and Sandy. And that's my sister's names. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I died laughing. That's a great coincidence. I've been to Disney World several times from Miami for Night of Joy. I I worked with a youth group for years and every year the youth pastor would drive up and uh, you know, basically fill up a bus and we drive up there and basically drive home in the middle of the night and get home at like seven o'clock in the morning. Mm. I haven't been to Florida as much as you would imagine, given that we are only, you know, eight or nine hours away. And it's some of the best beaches you could find. Oh, yeah. But once you get there, it's still a long way to go to get anywhere. Um, you know, when we start up with CMI with our with our speaking ministry, mm-hmm. they've got me going to Daytona. 
Oh, you poor thing. Well, the weekend or two weekends before Thanksgiving. But I think I'm going to Daytona for the first couple of days or, or Cape Canaveral for the first couple of days of Thanksgiving vacation before I go to see my, my family in, in Naples. So I have to make the same exact trip twice oh, in a row. It's like, oh, snap. At least the first time I won't be by myself. But the, I mean, the second time I won't be by myself. But the first time it's just be me. I'm going to turn around and do the same exact route on the same exact road. Just very strange. Yeah, that doesn't happen much. We have a place that my sister-in-law and her grandparents have a vacation house down there. Going to be my first time to check it out. Looking forward to it. Cool. We might just use it again and again. Cool. So, Good for you. So in the uh, news and updates around science, there's the story about the Milky Way. Oh, man, How it's shaped, yes. how it twists. As soon as I saw this, I grabbed the link and I put it right into the show notes. In fact, I think I started the show notes because I had that link and I had to start it. Nice. What a coolest thing. Now, we don't know if it's true. I mean, this is based on, you know, long age evolutionary naturalism. Hmm. However, it looks like science, the Milky Way uh, wobbles. I would believe that. What's that got to do with long ages and naturalism? Well, because you have to assume a lot in order to make these measurements and things like that. Oh. And the Milky Way is greater than 6,000 light years in diameter. So it's not easy to get a tape measure out and check your facts. Yes, but 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 so the Earth wobbles right on its axis. We know that, and for a long time, people have suspected and pretty much been able to show that the Milky Way wobbles on its axis, like a spinning top, slowly precessing. But what they just realize is that it's not only does the Milky Way wobble, but the disc, the outer disc, flexes up and down. There's a wave. That is wild. There's a wave in the disc as it's spinning. It's going up and down like, what? What a cool thing. Yeah, so this is a story from fizz.org. Does the Milky Way move like a spinning top? And then there's an animation that you can see where they take the representation of the spiraling galaxy and how it could be wobbling. And what it made me think of, Rob, was maybe like a sea creature, like a flat fish. Yes, undulating. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's not just a little bit. That's, that's, that, that's much more extreme than I would have thought. Right. And so when it's doing this hypothetically, are these wobbles taking like hundreds of years to happen for one complete wobble around the Milky Way? Or are we talking about a relatively short amount of time? It, it would be thousands of years. Okay. Because I was going to say, it looks like it's going to rip the Milky Way apart. <laughs> Maybe hundreds of thousands of years. Because it would look like it's going to rip structure. it to pieces if it yeah. was fast. Yeah. It's still fascinating. Fascinating. Unbelievable. Weird. And I want to know more, but we have to wait for more measurements to come in. Would we be able to record information from other galaxies, you think, over a few hundred years to see some example of wobble off of another galaxy? You know, if our tech is as good as it is today and we continue to keep records, would it take 300 years to see a hint of the wobble or anything like that? Maybe, but if we just take a snapshot and we, if we can look at a, a galaxy edge on, and there are several... If we just take a snapshot, we might be able to see the wave. Wow. Depending on how extreme it is. Very cool. Way cool. Well, that that was just a little thing that you can find in the show notes if you wanted to check it out because it's kind of crazy and Milky Way is home to us. Hey, Rob, do you have time for a question from from Jude? Sure, man. Spur of the moment question. You know, what we want to do is take listener questions Okay. Anything that they want to throw at us, follow at us, they can send us emails, they can catch us on Twitter. You know, they know where you are on Facebook and other social things. 
All right. This is one that we already got from Jude, and I don't know when we're going to get around to it, so I figured now is as good a time as any. Dun, dun, dun. So the question is, what is acid rain? Oh, man. You know, I haven't thought about acid rain for decades. So I've heard a couple of stories about strange phenomena of rain where it could have rained historically odd events, maybe uh, besides hail and ice and large water droplets. (laughs) There's been strange findings of things like fish particles or pieces of frog or insects that rain down and stuff I'm, I, I can't make up. Th- these are stories that have been accounted for. I, I've heard about fish, but I think that was from a water spout. And I've heard of frogs in the Amazon. I don't know if those are true or if they're urban myths. Okay. So let's find out. Okay. Well, and they could be. We'll have to answer it on the next show. We'll do the research as our audience right now is screaming at us. No, you dummies. This is the answer. Well, I don't know the answer. All right. Well, see, an acid rain is one of those things that you hear about every now and then, but I don't really know what it is because it's not happened around here. I mean, my car is not eaten away by acid. Oh, acid rain. Um, it was a coronavirus of the 1970s. <laughs> it was terrifying. Everyone was afraid of it. They didn't want to go out in the rain because of acid rain. Why? Forests were dying and all this devastation and then... The story just went away. Weird. I think I remember from a long time ago that it was fake. Now, I might be wrong. Really? It sounds like the kind of story that would be like you take smog and you just say, here's what is the ultimate conclusion of smog getting worse and worse over the major city and it's going to create acid rain. Well, it was. I think it was a coal-fired power plant and uh, specifically Pennsylvania and the prevailing winds blowing eastward into the Adirondacks of New York. And it was the acid rain from the smoke mixing with the water was killing vast swaths of forest. I remember hearing something about scientists looking at where the deaths were occurring, where it wasn't. And it was something about the limestone exposed in ridges near the lake. And that was, if there was limestone in the area, the forest was protected. And if there wasn't, it wasn't protected. But then they also cleaned up a lot of exhaust uh, in the 70s with scrubbers and other environmental laws. And so maybe that's what made it go away. Hmm. Honestly, it, I haven't heard this for like 20 years. And I don't remember what the answer is anymore. I know I haven't heard anything in my lifetime. Major scares like we've had the the fires that have scared everybody. We've had blizzards, hurricanes, tsunamis. Yeah, but this was... This was scary stuff. Mm. It literally was, it was panic level in some instances. Yeah, I could understand. It'd be sort of like the equivalent of having the volcano erupt in your backyard. Yeah. Because you just, yeah. you had that level of devastation, I would imagine. Of course, I lived in New York at the time. And so I was close to the epicenter of the acid rain epidemic or whatever it was. So maybe, you know, I heard about it more than other people, but it was on all the nightly news all the time. Well, good thing that it's not around that much anymore. Yeah. But we'd like to yeah. find out why. Why did this story just disappear? We'll see if we can do some more follow-up for it too. It, it wasn't like global warming where 10 years from now, we're going to be one degree warmer. It was like, no, we're getting eaten by acid today. <sighs> Killer bees too. Killer bees were in the news in the 70s. Oh man, there was, there was like documentaries on this man was mowing his lawn. He swatted a bee and all of a sudden he's surrounded by thousands of bees and he had to run and jump in the lake because the killer bees. <laughs> well, where are the killer bees? We have Africanized honeybees and they're, they are more aggressive than regular honeybees, but they're also people that actually 
have them in their hives and don't kill the hive because they're still giving them honey, not as much. And you got to be careful in the southwest of this country to capture a wild hive because they can be Africanized and they'll be a lot more aggressive and give you a lot less honey. Oh, weren't the African bees the ones you said that were super aggressive? Yeah. But they make really good honey, but who can get it because of the the aggression? Do they make good honey? I thought they made less less honey. I, I don't. Oh, do they? I don't know. All right, man. Show notes for next week. We got all these unanswered questions. Wild. And that wasn't even Beequinox. No, but see what happens when you get off topic and you ask me a question I don't know the answer to. Oh, my <laughs> word. Hey, Rob, where does your lap go when you stand up? <laughs> okay, never mind. Should never laugh on podcasts. You sound like a total dork when you laugh. I feel that way too. Except I realized the part that's the dorkiest is the the huge breathing that happens because you're laughing and guffawing. You're like <laughs> at the end. It's the breathing that kills it. That's funny. So I, I usually dampen down the the breathing, or I cut it out <laughs> because it just makes the podcast sound horrendous. Anyway. So, Rob, moving into the main topic. Yes. We left last week with airplanes, human flight, the engine-powered flight, and we got right up to the point when jet engines were introduced and how amazing they were and how quickly they came on. A phenomenal sort of innovation, but it's one that continues to be shaping up and changing and getting reinvented up to the present day. So it sounded like it was right up our alley. Yeah, I thought it was a great topic. So it was a follow-up from last week. The invention of flight, now it's the invention of a jet engine. You've taken a personal interest in planes and human flight in general, though, too, right? Just because of the engineering principles. Yeah. And I love history, too, and people risking their necks and dying in plane crashes is kind of cool to study. But yeah. Have you ever manipulated any kind of engine before? Besides SD's model rockets? Mm, that would count. Um, manipulated? No, I don't think so. Sure, I've thought about it a lot. At Georgia Tech, during homecoming, there's this competition between all the fraternities, and there's three stages of the competition. One is the mechanical display out front of your house, and you have to start it with a single action, like pushing a button or something like that. And another part of Greek Week, I guess not homecoming, is Greek Week, is the, uh, the contraption race or parade, if you would. And the only rule is you have to build a vehicle that goes down the road, but you can't have a direct connection between the engine and the drive shaft. So one machine that these guys built had a conveyor belt that lifted up bowling balls and dropped them into five-gallon buckets on a giant water wheel of bowling balls and would roll. They would have this giant wheel connect and it would roll down the street because the, <laughs> the big Ferris wheel thing was connected to like a, a pulley on the axle. But they got tired of chasing 12-pound Brunswick's down the street. I think they gave up on that one. The inchworm <laughs> was always popular. We built one one year. It was an inchworm design. It was so slow. got disqualified. And one year, though, this, this guy built a jet engine. And so he had a jet engine-powered car. He just strapped this big engine on top of the car. But he made it himself from scratch. And it kept flaming out. It was pr- powered by propane. And he had, um, he, he was walking behind it and he had all these paper towels. And every time it would flame out, he'd light a paper towel and throw it in the back end of the jet engine. And it would go down the road another 15 or 20 feet and flame out again. But it was like, dude, you built a jet engine. It was the like, <laughs> coolest thing. If that had worked, he would have gotten like a standing ovation of all time. But it didn't work when I saw it. Maybe it worked the next year. I don't know. Hmm. One year they were repairing Hemphill Street or whatever the street was that we went down. And so they changed the route and it was on a hill. And these guys had um, this design where they had 
two people driving, one in the front and a long pole and one in the back. And it was fine as long as they were going slow. But once they got up to a certain speed, it started oscillating wildly. And the guy in the front couldn't control it. Because every time he tried to correct it, it would hypercorrect. And he ended up slamming into the audience. Ooh. Standing on the side of the road. Everyone jumped out of the way. But I was, like, I was literally 10 feet away from where it impacted the audience. Everyone jumped. But I mean, he could have killed people. That, yeah, for sure. Because cause this is just... Who would have thought about putting seatbelts and brakes on a thing like that? You don't think about that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) We didn't build this thing for security and safety checks. But the subject is jet engines. Yeah. Not Georgia Tech nerds. No, no, no. This is one of the coolest inventions in human history. And one of the most practical, the most interesting. It works great. It's amazingly just interesting. Just when you get into the mechanics and how it works and all the physical processes, really cool. But it's non-intuitive for most people. So let's describe how a jet works. I want to imagine taking a garbage can and putting some gasoline in the garbage can and throwing a match into the garbage can. What's going to happen? It's going to it's going to burn things. It's going to burn, and it's, you can have a lot of flame coming up, right? And it's going to be like smoky and yeah, not the okay. worst ever. No. Now put a a hole in the side of the garbage can and blow air into it. What's going to happen? Well, it's going to create a whole lot more of the oxygen to burn. Yes. So it picks up a lot more. You're going to get a lot more efficient burn, no smoke, as long as you have enough air, and it's going to burn a lot faster. You're going to get a lot of heat. In fact, you're going to melt your garbage can. Yeah, a lot faster too. Yeah, but regular gasoline wouldn't melt a garbage can, but you force air into there and it's so much heat, you're going to melt your garbage can. But that's not a lot of pressure blowing out the top of the garbage can. This thing, the heat's going to rise pretty quickly, but it's not like a jet engine exhaust. Put the air in there, you're getting closer, but you're still not anywhere close to a jet engine. A jet engine, you really have to compress the air. Because when you compress that air into a small volume, a lot of physics catches on that you can harness for your own purposes. So, basically, same, it's the same thing is true with rocket engines and jet engines. F equals MA. If you want to move forward... You throw something backwards, and the more you accelerate that mass backwards, the greater the force going forwards. That makes sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because the force is going that direction, it's propelling it forwards. Yeah, so you have to throw something backwards from your plane to make the plane go forwards. That's uh, Newton's third law. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Same thing like if you're standing on a boat and you have an anvil in your hands and you throw the anvil off the back of the boat, well, the boat's going to go the other direction because whatever force you're putting into moving that anvil is going to slide the boat in the other direction. Equal and opposite. The same exact force going in both directions. But the amount of force is Newton's second law. The force equals the mass times acceleration. So even though we're only talking about air molecules, they don't weigh very much. If we can get them to move really, really fast, we can generate a lot of force. And that's the secret. The faster you can move them, the more force you get. Is that intuitive? Totally. Okay. There's something else that kicks into gear here, though. And that is something that is the bane of most students of chemistry. I mean, make your eyes roll. No one knows what's going on. You see this formula, you learn how to do the things for the test, and then you immediately forget it. It's called the ideal gas law which basically rules our daily lives, but most people don't want to deal with it because it's PV equals NRT. Pressure times volume 
equals the number of molecules times the temperature times some constant called R. So you can work this out in a lot of different ways. It's actually, it's a combination of other laws like Charles' law and Boyle's law. Charles' law is, is that the volume is proportional to the temperature. So if you take a balloon and heat it up, the balloon expands. If you cool it down, it shrinks. The volume is proportional to the temperature. That makes sense, right? I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah, and that, is that sort of related to why things shrink and contract under cold water and hot water? Uh, yeah, for solids, they shrink also. But we're talking about ideal gases. There's a direct relationship between temperature and volume. Okay. Uh, except it's not one-to-one. It's not like double the volume, or double the temperature, double the volume. There's a constant called K, but still, it's still proportional. As temperature goes up, volume goes up. Well, what that means is that if you reverse it, if you squish something down, the temperature has to go down. But the only way for the temperature to go down is to take heat out. So when you, okay, you've pumped up bicycle tires, right? Yeah, totally. Lots of times. And then, and then you, you reach down and you pick up the pump and it's hot. Mm-hmm. Why? That pressure. Because you're compressing a gas, squeezing those air molecules together, and heat comes out. So is that the same reason for why when you're using like a can of CO2 compressed air that it's decompressing? Yep. When it expands, it gets cold. Yep, exactly. Oof. It's because PV equals NRT. It gets really, really cold. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I tried to look up a good explanation for this online. I found probably a dozen different explanations and people saying, no, this guy's wrong. That's backwards. And so I was very frustrated, actually. So my example is when you pump up a tire, your the tube of the pump gets hot because you're squishing the molecules together, heat comes out. All right, so that is Charles' law. The volume and the temperature are proportional. Squish it down, the air is going to get hot, and then burn something in that air, and it's going to want to expand the pressure. PV equals nRT. If you increase the temperature, you increase the pressure. So just like a pressure cooker on your stove. You, know, you latch that thing down and you heat it up and the pressure inside goes way, way, way up because pressure is proportional to temperature also. And we can apply those thoughts to a jet engine and now maybe the jet engine is going to make a little more sense. Throwing stuff out the back gives you your thrust, but all the weird things that happen that are not intuitive at first are actually perfectly sensible when you understand the relationship between pressure, volume, and temperature. Okay? Yeah. All right. Still doesn't explain how you the jet engine can withstand all that force. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. We will get to that. Absolutely, we'll get to that. The earliest jet engines were made in the 1930s. I think, I think actually, Newton was a person who realized that a jet engine would work, or at least a rocket engine. Wow, really? He said, if you took something that was enclosed with one hole and made a bomb inside it, that thing would fly sideways. That's a rocket. Wow. He was early for that. Well, okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Rocket versus jet. What's the difference? Okay, so when you say rocket versus jet, you mean like a bottle rocket or you mean like a rocket ship? Same thing. Rocket versus jet. Well, a jet has more to it. Maybe like it has passengers and wings and it can be steered. But the rocket? No, jet engine. Jet engine versus rocket engine. Oh. That's interesting. So the rocket engine burns the fuel and it's done. Yes. One-way kind of trip. It has to be refueled, resupplied. It has to be... It has a, di- a discharge. Well, same thing happens with a jet engine. Jet engine runs out of fuel, right? Okay, think about the number of holes. How many holes does a rocket engine have? One. How many holes does a jet engine have? Oh. Two. 
one in the front, one in the back. Oh, okay. That's the big difference. Right. Okay. A jet, by definition, sucks air in one side, heats it up, and blasts it out the backside. A rocket feeds fuel and an oxidizer into a chamber that blasts out the backside, but it doesn't suck in anything from the front side. Hmm. So a modern jetliner, those engines are more powerful than the rocket that took John Glenn to space, but they don't work in space because they need oxygen from the air. That's why you never see them in, oh, okay. Like the space, the space shuttle had a giant oxygen tank, right? The space shuttle is a giant oxygen tank mm-hmm. to feed the rocket engines because it had to take the oxygen to space. <laughs> so that's the difference between jets and rockets. We should do a rocket show too. That would be really cool. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> so the simplest sort of a jet engine would just be, I mean, they don't work real well because you can't generate enough force, but just, no, that's not true. You need a fan. You need absolutely, you need a fan because if you just had a pipe and you put gasoline in it and burned it, it would blow out both ends, right? Right, of course. You need it to go in one direction. So you need a fan to blow in one direction. And what you do is you burn and you have it maybe, okay, so an old fashioned jet engine, you probably had to spin it up by hand or with a machine. And that would start a fan blowing air through the engine. You start burning and then the exhaust goes through another fan called a turbine which causes the fan in the front to turn. And so the the exhaust can only go in one direction because of the fan blowing on it. And then it lights up the air and that goes backwards past a turbine, which turns the front. So it's like this never ending loop of power. Hmm. And that's, that's the secret to a jet engine right there. The simplest jet engine like that is just that. So when you hear stories like in the movies or maybe true stories where there's a jet failure, is it sometimes that the fan just died or got jammed? Oh, man, there's all sorts of ways to blow up. A, uh, you can have one of the blades break off and, and shred the engine. You could suck in a bird. You can have a bearing go out. Um, you can have a fuel line blockage. Um, you can go at the wrong speed. The SR-71 Blackbird was infamous for um, unstarts, they called it, because they were trying to ride a, a supersonic shockwave, and they had to guide the air into the engine. If they did it just wrong, no air would go into the engine, and would just stop running at Mach 3. so the the simplest jet engine is just a tube it's got a fan a combustion chamber and a turbine to turn the fan that's in the front you have to add some fuel to it but when you do that it'll go out the back but that's not an efficient jet engine what you want to do is compress that air you want to compress it down to smallest volume the highest pressure that you can so that there's a lot of oxygen molecules in a small space and that fuel burns instantly when it lights. And then you get this giant expansion at the back end and everything flies out the back faster than it can if you're just doing a, a fan turbine system. That compression is really important. In modern jet engines, there's multiple fans in the front and they just they blow the air into a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller volume. And right now they're 3D printing parts for for um for the inside of a jet engine, because those things go like you know two or three thousand degrees. You can't use most metals in that sort of an environment. So when you say that the three D printing of it doesn't sound like they would be all that durable either, though. Like you can't imagine that they would last for very long. Well, they're three D printing like titanium and and ceramics and things like that. Wow. Yeah, high tech, really cool stuff. But the, their goal is to get the most strongest. Highest temperature surviving material possible. 
and that goes out the middle of a jet engine and the stronger and more resistant to temperature they can get it, the hotter they can burn it and the more efficient the engine is, the more thrust they get. Okay, simple enough? <laughs> yeah, as simple as it, as rocket science. So what I just described is called a turbo jet. It's just a tube. Okay. Air goes in one side, air goes out the back, and there's a flamey thing in the middle. Turbo jet. Did we, get in, did we invent words like turbo to explain, to describe jets? I don't know. Because of the word turbine? Maybe that's uh, where turbo comes from? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Turbine, turbo. And yeah, so in a, in a car with turbo, there's a turbine air blower. Okay, yeah. So that's sort of like the Batman's old 60s Batmobile. They yeah, man. Turn on the turbine engine, Robin, or whatever <laughs> it was. Um, I, I guess turbo comes from turbine. I never knew that. I think you're right, because that makes sense to me. Nice. Okay, that's a turbojet. That is not what is on a modern aircraft. That's not. When you get on a plane and fly across the country, that's not a turbojet. Uh-uh. It's a turbo fan. Ooh. Well, see, that doesn't sound as cool. So who wants to say that? It doesn't nearly sound as cool, no. But a turbo fan, there is basically the jet part of the engine has basically stayed the same size for decades, but the engines keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. See, our boss, I had a long uh, bike ride with him yesterday, and we we're talking about jets because he's a big plane fanatic, and he knows all the stuff about jet engines. And he told me that the Boeing 777 MAX, the engine is the same diameter as a 737 fuselage. <laughs> What? Yeah, so the engines nice. are getting bigger, but the jet part in the middle is not necessarily getting bigger. What they've done is they've been able to eke more and more power out of that power pack to turn a bigger fan. And a turbofan has a big fan in the front, much bigger than any World War II jet fighter. Uh, what their, their little jet engines that they had, puny little things. This big old fan. And most of the there does not go through the engine. Most of it goes around the engine that helps keep it cool. Very important. But the secret is they use the jet engine to turn the turbine, which turns a big old fan, which moves a lot of air. Most of the, the propulsion force in a jet engine is actually a fan. <laughs> it, that does not, not sound at all like what I would have thought. No, no, it's weird. It's, it's, it's the jet engine. Yeah, it's blowing hot air in the back. Yeah, sure. Burn, 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 blow, 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 blow. But this fan is moving more air and it's actually producing more thrust than the jet part is. For marketability, we talk about how it's high powered, that it's a jet, it has so many engines. Nobody says it's a hand cranked or fan powered. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally it's a fan powered airplane <laughs> yep sure enough but the whole goal there is it still has a compressor it still has a combustor and has a turbine and very often in the back they try to mix the air going around the engine with the air coming out of the engine that helps cool it a little bit but they can also run that the thing hotter because they're cooling that air down it won't melt the back of the engine but that also heats up the air going around it, which causes it to expand, which produces a little more thrust. So all these things they're doing, they're just tweaking, 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 tweaking over you know, 50, 60 years now, 70, 80 years. And these things are getting more efficient and better, just more powerful. Okay. A couple of years ago, I met a guy who does um, missionary flights to Haiti and other places in the Caribbean. It's called Agape Flights. You can look it up on the internet. It's cool. In fact, yeah, we'll do that in show notes. Uh, he, he gave me and my kids a, a tour of their facility. 
And here's, here's a plane we fly to Haiti. We're loading up with stuff. But then the engine cowling is off. And there's a guy like taking parts off the engine. I'm looking at it. And I'm like, what is this? You know, propeller plane. It's not a jet plane. I expected like a car engine. Or maybe one of those rotary engines that they used to have in the old-timey planes. that had a whole bunch of pistons in a circle up in the front of the plane. I'm looking at this. I'm like, this is not a piston engine. He's like, yeah, of course not. That's a jet. So what do you mean it's a jet? This is a propeller plane. He said, dude, almost all propeller planes, once you reach a certain size, I mean, they're turboprops. I said, what is a turboprop? And he said, it's a jet engine that turns the prop. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why on earth would you do that? Because it's, it's more efficient. Oh, mm, okay. Now, propellers have a big problem when they're speed spinning at faster than the speed of sound. They lose a lot of efficiency and they make a lot of noise and they tend to break because of shockwaves. So you don't want to run a propeller plane at close to the speed of sound. They, they start really falling off in their efficiency. But a turboprop propeller plane flies about the same speed as a small passenger jet hmm. for two-thirds of the fuel consumption. Now they go and make a lot of noise, but they use less fuel. Oh, so why do they fly small commercial jet planes? Why doesn't everyone fly a turboprop? Mm, the noise? Noise, but the fuel costs are offset by maintenance. A jet engine has only one spinny part, basically one very big complicated spinny part with a bunch of bearings, but there's no pistons. There's you know a lot, of, a lot less complexity in a jet engine. And if you take a jet engine and put a prop on it, yeah, it's not the best combination, but it still works very well. It's just, you know, once you get a, if you have to go a little faster, you don't want to use a turboprop. But modern commercial airlines, they fly about 0.8 Mach. Almost all of them, big ones, small ones, they all fly about the same speed. And that's because that's the most efficient cruising speed for a jet engine in general. You don't want to hit the speed of sound. You, you, the air resistance builds up and builds up and builds up and your, your efficiency just drops like a rock. You don't want to get hit that wall of air. You want to be less than the speed of sound, but as fast as you can go without losing efficiency. And it's usually about 0.8 times the speed of sound. So does turboprop make sense? Yep. A jet engine with propeller. Okay. Turbo shaft powers a helicopter blade. Oh, that helicopters sense. are jet powered, man. What never occurred to me? <laughs> yeah, they're jet powered. What they had to figure out was a way to keep the jet engine running at the same speed while they varied the speed of the blades. There are a lot of clutches on a helicopter, and I bet they have to wear those clutches wear out pretty quickly. I bet they have to replace them often. But you have to have a, an engine spinning at a you know, very efficient speed, and yet the helicopter blade is not moving at all. And then you get that clutch grabbing on there, all that heat generating from the friction. You spin it up faster and faster and faster. And now it's spinning at, I don't know, maybe they locked a the clutch in at some speed, but still you have to vary the speed of the thing while you're flying. So that was a trick to figure that out. And that's, but that was the invention of the turbo shaft. So ultimately, the helicopters are just running off of a big fan, externalized. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a giant turboprop. Yep, but with a clutch. Mm -hmm. And that's the key, it's the clutch part. Okay, after all that, you can take some of these jet engines, like a turbojet, and you can inject fuel into the engine after the combustion chamber and after the turbine. So none of this is going to go to power the fan in the front. But if you blow a lot of fuel into the engine, 
it's going to burn and the gas is going to expand even more. That's called an afterburner. It's total waste of fuel. Oh. Terrible fuel efficiency. But if you're in a fighter jet and you're trying to get away from a missile or a MiG-20 whatever, or, you know, you turn on the afterburners and that fuel that's still inside the engine burns even, it burns the air in there, make it even hotter. And that goes out the back really quickly and you go a lot faster. They usually use it on takeoff and then in dogfighting. But you can't run a long time on it because your your fuel just goes and it's gone. (laughs) That's an afterburner. Now, there's another thing. You can actually take all the moving parts out of a jet engine and it still works if you can get compression. You don't need any fans at all. There's a thing called a ramjet. Literally ramming into the air. Oh, that's what that is, huh? You have just a tube, and a tube is inside. It has constrictions and wide spaces, and a um, a cone thing in the front, like an SR seventy one Blackbird has a cone in the front that they they vary how far that cone is sticking out. Now the SR seventy one engine is not really a ramjet. A lot of people say it is. Some people say it's not, but it does have an interesting ramjet like feel to it, even though it's a, it's a regular jet engine with a lot of weird modifications. But a ramjet is just a tube with a cone in the front and some wide and narrow spaces. There's nothing that spins. And if you're moving really fast, like if you're moving at Mach 3, you can get the air coming in the front going around that cone to compress, throw some fuel into it, it'll burn and blow out the back end. And you can go at like Mach 5. Wow. Now, this is Cool, wonderful, amazing. But it, so they have to get these things started on the back of a rocket. Almost always they launch it from a rocket and then they turn it on. Or in the case of the SR-71, which is like a, a modified version of this, they get up to mock whatever they're going. And as they're going faster and faster, they start f- closing flaps and diverting air around the engine or feeding air into the engine and changing things. And there's a bypass around the engine. It looks almost like a ramjet thing. But it's not quite. And then there's the scramjet, which is going to be, once we perfect them, we've flown a couple, but they tend to crash. Going to be the fastest thing we've ever made. That is a supersonic ramjet. Because you think about um, inside the jet engine, right? Yeah. If that air is moving through, the, you're going faster than the speed of sound. You're going supersonic. But if the air inside the engine is supersonic and you add fuel to it, what happens to the fuel? Well, it disappears. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the air inside a ramjet is actually subsonic. They are outside of supersonic, but they widen it out to slow it down. Then they burn fuel and blow it out the back end at supersonic speeds. But inside, it's actually subsonic. But a scramjet, they figure it out by fine tuning this concept how to keep a fire going, even though the air that's blowing through the fire is traveling at faster than the speed of sound. And really weird physics happens at that speed. (laughs) And so, so far, the U.S. government has done scramjets. Um, I read an article about India testing their first scramjet. And they usually last for 30 seconds to a minute before they obliterate themselves. And they almost always launch them on a rocket. What a cool concept. Yeah. So, I don't know if people are ever going to fly in a scramjet. I imagine we will fly in a ramjet. Um, and then, of course, there's rocket power that um, Elon Musk is talking about, you know, New York to Tokyo in 30 minutes and things like that. Okay, maybe. <laughs> but it's just, it's just cool stuff and cool ideas. So that is um, Carter's quick and dirty guide to the jet engine. So in general, on the jet engines, are they m- in most 
conventional air travel nowadays? Do we have many examples where, you know, like if you want to see a town, you might be able to find a small plane with regular propellers, but anything for real travel and serious military operation is all running on jet engines now, right? Uh, pretty much, except, oh, I should look that up. Where did I? I saw the most amazing concept plane. Um, it flies pretty much as fast as a jet, but it looks like a bubble and it has one propeller in and it has one propeller in the back. What? They designed the entire plane to fly as efficiently as possible at one speed only. And they have it streamlined such that the shape of the plane is exactly perfect for that velocity. So the air flows around it without causing any turbulence because turbulence slows you down. Wow. What was the name of that? I read this a couple of months ago. I probably posted it on Facebook. It's just totally cool. Maybe we might even have talked about it on the show, actually. Oh, my. Brains. Memories. Well, it, do- it doesn't ring a bell for me, but that sounds okay. very interesting. I will find it. And I want to fly in this thing because it's quiet. It's fast. It's extremely fuel efficient. Really? Much oh. more efficient than any jet. Now, jets, you know, they use more fuel, but they're faster. And the maintenance in an engine is low, hmm. generally. And that's why the industry went to jet planes and got rid of the old piston-powered planes. But now physics is starting to physics is starting to catch up, and uh, we might have propeller planes that are in the future could do a lot of uh, commercial and freight transport. But I would just love to fly in one. It's the coolest idea. But I still want to fly in a zeppelin. I want to tour Europe in a blimp. You know, I really would like to go up in a blimp too. Oh, that'd be wild. I, I find them wonderful. You know, like a sense of wonder. It's been a whole you know couple of days since our last recording, and that dream has not gone away yet. No, <laughs> one of my favorite films is called Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. And it begins with a Zeppelin. That's one of your favorite films. Interesting. That's one of the few films I actually watched twice. Oh, really? but I wouldn't say it was my favorite film, but it was intriguing enough that a year or so later, I was like, I want to watch this one again. I- I'm a little disappointed they didn't make more sequels. Yeah. They- was that the, the Nazis on the moon one? Not Nazis. It's uh, a mad scientist who wants to nuke the planet Earth and start from scratch again with a new Adam and Eve and uh, like an arc. Yeah bunch of animals yeah okay okay that's right that's right and then that's the moment with something else there's a great zeppelin scene at the beginning of the film that, that was a film where they have a rocket and it was i want to say far-fetched by the time they got to the rocket scene i don't think they cared anymore <laughs> i watched a um after hearing a pilot talk about this talk about if you fly one of these cha- planes upside down you only have 10 minutes or so before the oil drains out of the engine and it, the, the engine would overheat and they're talking about denzel washington's movie flight and so like, oh, that sounds cool. So, you know, I watched this movie where the pilot rolls the airplane and saves everybody and lands in a field. And I thought Denzel Washington was a Christian. I had heard the, something like that before. Anyway, he's very religious. Yes. Well, I, I, I think he goes to a Christian church, maybe Seventh-day Adventist church, but I think it's a, a, a you know, mainline Christian denomination, if I don't remember correctly, though. Um, and I know he did that runaway train movie where the, um, the engine was 777. You know, I'm a dead giveaway. Come on, man. But in flight, um, there is full frontal nudity of a woman in the opening scene. And Denzel Washington's in the bed. And I'm like, wait, what is going on here? So, dude, man, I mean, you could have done the same scene without actually showing anything. Yeah, I don't understand that either. He has a lot of content in most of his movies. I, I, it's over the top. 
<laughs> it doesn't seem to add I, I I don't remember anything like that in a Denzel Washington movie. Yeah, I don't know about the nudity, but a lot of violence, a lot of language. Yeah, yeah. But didn't he do the Book of Eli? Mm-hmm. That was amazing. It was. And he didn't take advantage of the woman. Nope. And at the end, what was the book? Oh, man, I'm going to tell the, you know, spoil the secret for everybody. But that was not what I expected sort of thing and with definitely a Christian vibe to it. But this one, man, he just blew it. I was, I'm very disappointed. And I, I wish I had watched reviews, but because I heard they weren't recommending the movie, but I heard a captain talking about it. I know this captain is a Christian and they're just talking about that part of the movie. They wasn't talking about the rest of it. So I just said, oh, this must be a good movie. Oh, well, oh of course. Yeah. Was there another plane jet flying related movie you could recommend? Uh, yeah. Captain uh, What's His Head with Tom Hanks. Oh, cool. I haven't seen that one yet. It's about the story of the pilot taking off from, I think, LaGuardia in New York. And he sucks birds into both engines and all the engines flame out and he's not even in the air yet hardly. So he has to land in the Hudson River and everybody lives. I wasn't paying attention to language or skin. I don't remember. I don't think there was. I just don't. That was a while ago I saw it. So I don't remember. Yeah. So that was Sully from 2016. That wasn't too long ago. Someone, someone did a list of all the Tom Hanks movies. <laughs> Castaway, Sully, that one when he's a captain on the... Uh, on the oil tanker and they get abducted by uh, Ethiopian or, or whatever um, militants on <laughs> Like whatever you do, don't hang out with Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He as an actor. He has 93 credits on IMDb. Wow. Woo. I remember when he was just little old Tom at the, some was a bosom buddies. What was it? He was a start off in a sitcom, probably ABC oh, sitcom. Really? Yeah. Long, long time ago. So I think Nicolas Cage, I think he was in the movie Valley Girl. I, I've heard of it. I've never seen it. I, I don't I don't remember it. Was, I was too young for it when it came out. I remember seeing it with my sisters on the, like VCR or TV. I don't remember. But I mean, Nicolas Cage, he had like almost no chest hair. And he's on this beach scene. <laughs> he looks like a teenager. <laughs> What's that got to do with airplanes? Okay. <laughs> I have no clue. So thanks, everybody, for joining us on this Flight of Fancy. If you found this episode interesting in any way, consider sharing it with your friends and family. And the episode's links and show notes, which we've mentioned a couple of times, are available with this podcast in the player that you're listening to the show. Or you can also find them at the website nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 56 for this episode number. And if you want to get Equinox Plus, that is where you can find bonus episodes. And we have one going out here very soon. We have to work out some of the kinks with the the RSS feed for the subscriptions, but the idea is that if you become a member, you'll be able to get the regular episodes plus the bonus episodes in one subscription feed so that you get them together. And we have a friend who is working for, well, he and I created nightowl.fm together, and he's the developer. And so when he finds the time, he's going to move over the subscription to there and get it away from Patreon so that we can do everything we want So if you bear with us, we'll have that all together here pretty smoothly soon, but continue to get the bonus episodes if you want from the Patreon source. And we'll get you set up with a new one when it happens. So you should also check out biblicalgenetics.com, which is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch the videos and join discussions in the comments. You can also find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi, and you could just search it in any of your podcast steps to find it. Also, if you wanted to send us a question or a comment, some feedback, or want to give us something to talk about, a future topic maybe, write to equinoxtalkshow at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter, that's podcast equinox. 
Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox. So Rob, hey man, it's been a couple of days since we talked about bees. We got enough stuff in our notes here. We could do a whole another episode on bees, probably. Oh, easily. <laughs> I wanted to tell everybody about a little scare I had with my beehive because, you know, we're we're trying to be as careful and take precautions as we can. And there was several days there that we had a, just lots and lots of rain. What I did was I got the bees situated in the yard, and then. When the there was this one day where there wasn't any rain, so it was the weekend. What you know what I did? I got out my new pressure washer and I cleaned the driveway. One of the problems for the driveway was that water running down was pulling up because there wasn't anywhere for it to drain. So what I did is I actually created a trench (laughs) using the pressure washer. Oh, I told you to do a trench. You do a pressure washer. Good idea. Great idea. Yeah, just obliterate the dirt that was in the way, and it went right off uh, out of the driveway and off into the side yard. And then we had more of the rain. And I go out that day and, well, uh, all the rain that was pulling up in the driveway went down the yard and created a little pond around the bee box on its cinder blocks. Bee island. (laughs) They had their own moat. And I went out there. It didn't seem to phase the bees at all. Fortunately, the water goes away pretty quickly, but I'm going to have to relocate the bees. I don't really want to move them anywhere else, but I just want, I don't know, it's, it's disturbing to see water and uh, the cinder blocks standing in it. Yes. Especially if the ground gets soft under your cinder blocks. You don't want that. How are your bees doing? Um, everyone's doing well. I've been doing some, oh, I guess, so many different anecdotes I could say. I don't know which one I want to say. Right, I'm going to pick this one. They've been doing some weird things lately. Oh. Things I've never seen bees do. It's been several days, like a week. Every time I go out there, dozens of bees in the front and they're sucking on the landing board. What? They get their faces on the landing board and they're like, they're licking it. It sounds like your bees are teething. They're actually wobbling their front legs back and forth, lifting one leg up, lifting the other leg up with their, their proboscis or maybe even their tongue on the wood. <laughs> what is going on? I've never seen this before. They're like practicing like bulls for the charge or something. Yes, this is what it looks like a little bit. Uh, I'm like, are they fighting? Are they pushing other bees away? No, no, they look perfectly calm. Growing pains. It's kind of like going to the gym, you know, gnawing on the bench press. Well, apparently this is called washboarding and is normal and bees do this, but I've never noticed it. Do do you know why they do it? No. And I looked up and 11 years ago, some articles said, we don't have any ideas. I said, I got to look up a newer article, one from uh, 2018. We have no ideas. Like, oh, come on, 2020. We have no idea. So I don't know. Maybe someone's learned it, but apparently a lot of people in the beekeeping community haven't learned it. But it's a juvenile bees. They're not flying yet. Yeah, so I just Googled it, and yeah, the result says, a strange honeybee behavior known as washboarding or rocking continues to elude an explanation. But it is fun to watch. So I thought that maybe they were thirsty. Like, are they licking my board because they're thirsty? Because I haven't provided them a water source. 
And I don't know, there's no water sources around me. I don't know anyone who in my neighborhood has a pool. The stream is ephemeral. It's only there when, when it's been raining a lot. So you know how we were using the the jar upside down and we were filling it with water? Yes, that's what I did. That's what I did. I went and got my jar filled up with distilled water. People say they like um, swamp water and pond water more than tap water. So I use the distilled water or whatever, you know drinking water out of a bottle and I put it out there and I dripped some water on the thing in front of the bees and they didn't pay attention to it. It's like, maybe they're not thirsty. And that's when I came inside and looked it up. Washboarding, hmm. whatever. Bees are weird. Well, I could see the benefit of giving them the water in the jar anyway, if they take to it. If they take to Curious it. Curious if they would. Yeah, because in the summer, it's going to be hot and dry. And if we go weeks without rain, I have no idea what a water source for them would be. And everyone says you should provide your bees with a water source. The thing is, that breeds mosquitoes. And I hate mosquitoes. I don't want mosquitoes. <laughs> so I put my water source far enough away from my house, the bees will find it, and maybe mosquitoes will be in my house. But Well, in your case, you also have a lot of woods just surrounding your house. So yeah. you've always got those little pests around you all the time. They like the damp environment. Right before the podcast, I was out looking at my bees doing their washboarding, and around my ears, like, oh, mosquito, go away. I don't think he bit me, but I was I was upset because I hate mosquitoes. Right before we got out of the podcast, my wife was giving me a haircut outdoors, and it was just enough of a breeze the entire time. It was blowing my cut hair all over the place into my shirt and you know, in my ears, all over all over her arms. Uh, it's not fun. So, have you seen any hive beetles or other pests? Um, actually, I have. I have twice seen hive beetles going into my hive. See, that seems like it would be really quick. Like, how did the hive beetles even know to find the bee box? They can smell from miles downwind and they just fly upwind. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I've seen some when I pull the frames, I squished a couple. But my beetle traps have not caught any beetles except one of my beetle traps. When I pulled the mason jar off the bottom of the hive, it was crawling in maggots. Ooh. And I know that the thing is I put some fruit in there too. I put some oil and some vinegar and a little chunk of fruit. But the thing had, it was like sticky and gooey. The oil and vinegar mixture was gone. It was just this frothy maggoty little thing but it was like i don't know if it was fruit flies which probably it was or if it was beetle larvae which may have been but they're all different sizes and there was a beetle in there so hmm so i just took it and dumped it out so all the beetles will dry up and die in the sun or the, the maggots anyway but there's little little teeny ones not as big as a fly magnet little fruit fly sized oh huh. and so i took that out no more fruit chunks in my beetle traps just oil and vinegar and that's it what do you think about sticking a little bit of honey in there? Would that be kind of not a good idea? I don't that know. That close to the bees? I don't know. I don't know. Um, the beetle traps that people sell commercially, they they put um, apple cider vinegar in them. I don't have any. I use balsamic vinegar because that's all I have. You know, I haven't been out to the beehive closely or looked inside of it in the last two weeks, but I'm really tempted to get out there. Uh-huh. Yep. You're now an old hand. Yep, now it's in the background, then you stop paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is, you know, I spent a lot of time checking on it every week the first month. And it got <laughs> yep. to the point that we've expanded and now we're letting them get over to the honey do frames. You, do you know if mm -hmm. they're going over there? I don't know yet. It's been about two weeks since I've checked. I, I looked after a week and they hadn't built any comb over there. And there was maybe 
20 to 50 bees maybe on that side and they're all clustered right at the the queen excluder so maybe i'm gonna pull the queen excluder out entirely hmm. i don't know because remember we have it vertically not horizontally maybe they don't like the shape i don't know or maybe they're just not ready to move over there yet they haven't filled up the front three frames so maybe they don't they're not moving yeah no in my case they were doing really good to fill up the front i i would think that by now if they're if they're still on the same track that they were two weeks ago they would have most of the first 10 frames full but i i can't say i mean i, I gotta check it We'll see. Now, have you noticed, uh, when was the last time you poked around? Did you see any queen cells or anything like that cool? Um, yeah, I saw one queen cell and a whole bunch of drone comb. It's like, why are they making so many drones? And then looking at them lately, I got a lot of drones flying into my hive. I was like, oh no, they're getting robbed by some native bee species, these giant bees. And I was like, so I actually, I whacked one of them out of the sky. And I, I brought it inside and looked up what a drone looks like. I'm looking at this thing. So yeah, no, it's not. It's a drone from my own colony. And there's a like a lot. Like I probably watched 20 of them fly in when I was standing there for 10 minutes. Huh. And any drone that returns to the hive has wasted his life. He's supposed to go and mate. And if he mates, he dies. If he comes back to the hive, man, you're just eating honey. Oh. So I thought of a um, an artificial intelligence bot that's actually just looking at the bees and saying, oh, that's a big fat one. And sucks it up, gets rid of it. Because <laughs> they're just eating honey. And in one sense, you know, the bees need to reproduce. And I understand that. But they don't need as many drones as that queen has made. So I'm not sure. I was, I was tempted to just like decap all the drone comb or pull that frame out. I figured they made them. I, I guess I should leave it. Maybe we could just ask the, the, you know, the beekeeper that we got the colonies from. If he would know what's going on about that behavior, maybe it's something going on about this time of year. Well, I looked it up online and I said that this is a sign of a healthy hive. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, okay, fine. Everyone be happy. Make make boys. Go ahead. Eat my honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, can, can, can you get back to making some more honey, please? <laughs> a little less of this. <laughs> <laughs>